This is the Serial and Midnight Podcast, episode 11. Well, howdy and welcome back to the Serial at Midnight Podcast. My name is Heath Holland. I am your host and we are kicking off a new year with new conversations, new prospects, new possibilities. This is a really fun episode because we're talking to Bob Fermanek and Greg Kintz from the 3D Film Archive. Now, if you are a 3D aficionado, there's a lot here for you. There's scoops, there's announcements, there's uh, a really interesting conversation about the future of 3D, both in cinema and at home, uh, which is tied into physical media, it's tied into the industry, it's tied into film preservation. If you're not a 3D aficionado, say you don't have a 3D setup at home, this is still a great conversation for you. You know, the 3D Film Archive, not just, they don't only restore 3D films, they also restore flat films. And we know their work, right? You know their work from Kino Lorber, from classic flicks, from the things that they're doing uh, themselves through the Kickstarter. And uh, I have so much admiration for these guys. And I really hope that that comes through in this conversation. I think it does. Um, but I want to say this. So there's so much information here. We got some questions directly from the audience here. Uh, but there's a lot of information here. There's even some, some scoops. There's announcements here about things that are to come. There's at least one bit of breaking news in this episode. But I want to say this. If you're watching the Sorry, if you're listening to the audio version, you know, I do two versions of the Serial at Midnight podcast. The video version goes to YouTube, so you can watch it, and the audio version goes to wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, if you're listening to this, head over to the YouTube feed, serialatmidnight.com slash, uh, sorry, youtube.com slash Serial at Midnight. Serial at Midnight.com should be a daily stop for you as well. Uh, and check out the video version because there's so many images. I've added over two dozen images and I'm going to go ahead and tell you there's a full trailer in this video for something that's uh, that gets announced here. So uh, if you want to see, you know, the visuals of what we're talking about, this is a very visually rich um, episode of this podcast, uh, then you, I don't want you to miss it. And that's where it is. It's at youtube.com slash serial at midnight. And you can see all the things that you're hearing in this episode. Uh, without further ado, I'm just going to go ahead and cut to our wonderful conversation with the 3d film archive, Bob Fermanek and Greg Kintz. Take it away. We talked a little bit before we started recording, and you were talking about these glasses and how you wanted to make it clear that <laughs> there they are. That this is not necessarily how people were watching movies, you know, in the in the golden age of 3D. Tell talk, talk to me about that. Not at all. Uh, the first, uh, well, right off the bat, uh, hey, thank you for having us on your program here. Yes. It's something we've been looking forward to for a very long time. So. Oh, I love uh, talking to you. It's it's always a joy for me. So thank you for being here. Absolutely. Well, Anaglyphic dates back to um, the very first 3D film that was shown, which was 1915. Uh, some test footage was shown in New York City. Uh, and then throughout the 20s and early 30s, there were a couple of features, uh, a lot of shorts that were shown in theaters in Anaglyphic using these, you know, red and cyan or actually red and green were the, the colors used in those years. In 1936 though, uh, Edward Land uh, first introduced polarized 3D and that used uh, sort of neutral gray filters to polarize the left and right images uh, coming off the projector. 
and the glasses would uh, separate those so that your left eye sees the left print, your right eye sees the right print. And that's how all of the vintage 3D was seen. It was, it was first exhibited in 1939 at the New York World's Fair. Uh, the first color polarized 3D film was 1940 at the World's Fair. And uh, all of the golden age features, and there were 50 of them domestically, were all shown with polarized glasses. Now, uh, as a contrast, here's you know, a modern pair of, I think these are Samsung uh, viewers. You Did know, you neutral. steal those from the, the movie theater? You're not supposed to take those home. Uh, oh, <laughs> I, you know, I was wondering why they were chasing me. That's a good point. But yeah, this is very similar to Real D and, and what they're doing today. Well, as a contrast, here are glasses that were handed out in 1952 and early 1953 for Buona Devil, the first, you know, full color domestic 3D feature. And again, neutral gray polarized glasses. Uh, now these are, you know, a little bit flimsy. They don't stay on all that well. Uh, I won't even try, but uh, you know, they were cheap and they were quickly uh, produced. So by the summer and fall of 1953, when people were really starting to, uh, you know, have issues with 3D movies, especially from bad presentations, uh, they went into overdrive to develop better glasses. And uh, this is, an example of what was introduced in the fall of 1953. These are plastic frames, uh, really very comfortable. You know, they fit like a pair of normal sunglasses that you would wear. They even came in a nice little pouch like this to uh, kind of keep them clean. Uh, there were also some crazy designs and I think these are probably some of my favorites. Uh, these are the Magic Viewer 3D glasses that were introduced in late 1953. Check out that very kind of space age look That's to crazy. them. <laughs> uh, and they fit comfortably too. So uh, the idea was that these left and right prints were shown on two 35 millimeter projectors, just like the one I have uh, behind me here. And they were put through uh, these projection filters. And this is uh, a Polaroid filter that would go on the left projector and would polarize that light. And uh, it was good, it was very high quality 3D. The only thing that really cursed it was that these two prints had to be precisely interlocked, not only frame accurate, but the shutters had to be in phase. Uh, if your shutters were a little bit out of phase, then you were seeing sort of a watery image on screen and 90 minutes of that will lead to eye strain. If they were out of sync, even by a single frame, you got a headache and uh, when Polaroid was trying desperately to salvage the situation in uh, the fall of 1953, they did field testing and found that about 50% of 3D presentations around the country were being shown either out of sync or out of phase. So it was a real mess. Um, and one of the nice things about the work that we're able to do now and go back to these original left-right elements we're finding films that were really beautifully photographed and with, with very complex camera systems and cinematographers who really knew what they were doing to capture a good 3D image. Uh, so any time that we have an opportunity to restore one of those, uh, we love to do it because it's, it's really presenting an optimum presentation and that in many ways is better than what they saw seven decades ago. 
Absolutely. You know, as you talk about this, well, both of you, here's a question for both of you. You talk about 3D with such passion and knowledge and enthusiasm. Where does it come from? What what started your love affair with 3D? Do you do you remember? Was there a first was there a movie that you saw and you're like, wow, this is, you know, expanded my mind or something? Tell me a little <laughs> bit about how you got into it. Bob, do you want to go first on this one? Yeah, um, I think my first exposure to any kind of 3D image was 1966. I was five years old and Batmania was sweeping the country. And like uh, millions of other kids, I was Batman crazy. And uh, they put out a Viewmaster reel where you held up the viewer and you looked through it. And uh, not only was it 3D, but it was color. We had a black and white TV. So all of a sudden I'm seeing these sets and costumes and color and uh, it just blew my mind. And that was at five years old. Uh, but it was about, it, it took a few years. It was around 1972 when I first became aware of 3D movies. And uh, you couldn't find anything at that time. There was, you know, there weren't any books. I remember going to the library and, you know, it was very, very hard to find any information. And uh, in 1975, I saw a, an ad for uh, a publication from uh Dallas, Texas, it was called Everything You Wanted to Know About 3D But Were Ashamed to Ask. And I sent for it. And while waiting for it, on a Sunday night uh, at the movies on television, uh, Money From Home premiered with Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. I was a big Martin and Lewis fan, so yeah, definitely had to watch that. But I watched it and didn't think anything of it. A few days later, that publication comes in and I'm flipping through it. And I said, wait a minute, there's an ad for Money From Home in 3D. You mean to tell me that was a 3D movie? I had no idea. And all of a sudden the idea hit me, why didn't I see it that way? Why can't I see it that way? And that's really what started the whole passion, uh, obsession, madness, whatever you want to call it, to seek out these films and, and see them as they were originally intended. Well, okay. So follow up question really quick. Was that, were there any theaters showing 3D at that point or was it just completely done? It was over the door, been closed. We don't do that anymore. No, it was totally. The early seventies was the worst time. There were a few releases, but they didn't play New Jersey where I was uh, growing up. And it wasn't until about 75 or 76 when, um, a theater in New York ran a double feature of Creature from the Black Lagoon and it came from outer space. And it was an anaglyph. It had been converted into anaglyphic, but I went to that and I was knocked out. I, and I remember going several times because I thought I may never get a chance to see these again. Uh, uh, so uh, there were some releases in the late seventies, things like Dynasty and uh, the big boom in the early 80s that hit with Kaminatia and, and Friday the 13th and Jaws, things like that. Uh, I was all over those. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of how, how it started. And the whole idea with the 3D film archive was just basically somebody's got to step up and, and try to rescue these films in 3D so uh, other people could see them as they were intended. And uh, that's been the goal from, you know, day one, almost five decades ago now. Wow. Greg, same question for you. Um, you know, what was interesting for me, the definitely the first um, 
stereoscopic experience I had were the Viewmaster reels. And, you know, you could get all your favorite shows and, you know, and a great variety of content in 3D. And I remember the option in the mid 70s to get a, uh, a Viewmaster projector. And I ended up getting one for my birthday and I was sorely disappointed. And I just, I wondered what was lost. And I realized the Viewmaster projectors of the mid seventies were monoscopic. You, you just, you know, it shot out one eye side and, and, you know, comparing the two, I quickly realized I was seeing a 3d experience with the Viewmaster, you know, and that's part of the thing that made the Viewmaster reels so special. And in the late 70s, and marrying, uh, you know, much, much of Bob's experience, I had the chance to see um, it came from outer space first. And then a week later, the local uh, college was playing um, Creature from the Black Lagoon. And for me, what was neat was these are movies I grew up with on late night TV, you know, because this was before, you know, VHS and, and home, home media. Um, I knew these movies and I, I, I loved them and enjoyed them, but I had no idea they were in 3D. And, and the great thing with director Jack Arnold is the way he staged things, it was a normal, the off-screen effects were a normal part of his storytelling. So if you saw the movie flat, unlike some of the 80s titles, you had no idea it was shot in 3D. And um, boy, uh, it came from outer space when that avalanche hit. I, I was hooked. Um, it was uh, it was a totally unique experience and just how the the theater screen became like a window. And likewise with Creature from the Black Lagoon. Um, yeah, I was I was hooked and um, I think it was like two years later the 3D wave hit and with coming at you and you know and I saw all those titles and enjoyed those. And like Bob, you know, he was looking at saving the actual 35, mil 35 millimeter elements. You know, I was looking at home video and going, what systems can be used to, to bring this home? You know, and, and how can we see these at home in a, in a proper format? And I mean, ironically, it, it took about 60 years you know, ultimately for that to happen, to see them, you know, a, a back to the future thing, if you will, mm -hmm. you know, to see them as they were intended to be seen. So. Well, and you guys are staying really busy with this stuff too. I mean, it seems like there's a constant uh, flow of, well, an access to the materials. And I know that can be a challenge in and of itself is finding these good, yes. good surviving material. How much of this stuff is, is lost? Do you think? Bob? Well, uh, the survival rate of the, the material from the, the 20s is pretty slim. There's very, very few of those survive. But beginning in the 19, mid-1930s, it gets a lot higher. Uh, remarkably, of the 50 domestic Golden Age features, uh, there's only one now that is totally lost. And that's uh, uh, a tragedy because it's, it's called Top Banana with Phil Silvers and Rosemary and it was a, a filmed uh, uh, version of the hit Broadway show that, that played around the country. Uh, it was photographed in natural vision, but by time it was ready for release, 
uh, 3D movies were kind of dying out. So United Artists sent it out flat. And uh, the only thing that survives today is the right side. The left is completely lost. Uh, so that's that's tragic. But the survival rate is very good. And uh, in fact, maybe this is a good time to uh, tell your uh, viewers and listeners some good news. Uh, we are going to be restoring a Golden Age 3D feature uh, for Kino Lorber uh, that has not been seen anywhere in 3D since 1954. And uh, for many years, it was considered at least partially lost in 3D. And there's quite an interesting backstory about that. But uh, coming up soon in next, uh, next year will be Southwest Passage, uh, a terrific 3D Western uh, photographed in natural vision. And uh, nobody has seen it. In, in seven decades. So it's uh, going to be really wonderful to bring that one uh, back and, and get it get it restored. Uh, there's some very good people that worked on it. Uh, I could tell you the director was Ray Nazaro, uh, who began working in the silent era and uh, began directing in the early 1930s. Uh, the screenplay is by Harry Essex, uh, who did a uh, quite a number of 3D films that uh, are now classics, including Creature from the Black Lagoon, I, the Jury, and It Came from Outer Space. Uh, his partner on the script was uh, Jeffrey Holmes, uh, who did uh, a 3D film called Those Redheads from Seattle, and also uh, the science fiction classic Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh, the producer is Edward Small, who uh, went back to the silent era and was still doing movies into the 1970s. And the cinematographer is Sam Leavitt, who uh, was an Oscar-winning uh, cinematographer for The Defiant Ones in 1958. He also shot Cape Fear and Exodus, Anatomy of a Murder. And uh, there's a lot of good people that worked uh, on this particular film. Uh, it was shot in uh, June and July of 1953 on location in Kanab, Utah. And uh, they had over 100 actors and technicians that uh, spent about five weeks on location to film it. Uh, it was quite an ordeal because at times the, uh, the temperature hit 122 degrees on location. Uh, they also had a cyclone come through uh, the, the production in it destroyed a little Western street that they had built for uh, some opening scenes in the film. Uh, they've also got uh, the unique distinction of, of using local uh, Navajo Indians to play Apaches uh, in the movie. So there's a you know, good sense of realism there. And uh, I know movie buffs will like the fact that it also features uh, the actor who uh, appeared in more 3D movies at that time than any others, they called him the king of 3D, and that's Morris Ankrum. Uh, you'll also see him in Taz's Son of Cochise that we restored for uh, Kino Lorber and Universal. Uh, he's in The Moonlighter, Devil's Canyon, and Arena as well. He's got almost 300 credits to his name. So he's very prolific, but uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, Rod Cameron's the lead. It also features uh, Joanne Drew and John Ireland, who were uh, married at the time. And rather than me try to tell you what an exciting film it is, uh, Heath, why don't you let your viewers take a look at the original coming attraction trailer and they can see for themselves.
Rod Cameron as Edward Beale, famous friend of Kit Carson, an adventurer extraordinary. We're heading due west from this big bend in the Santa Fe Trail. Kit Carson says we won't even get that far, but he's wrong. The North Africans traveled all over the Sahara with camels and survived. I'm going to swim mine right into the Pacific Ocean. The Arabs call them ships of the desert. The pioneers call them Beale's Folly. Beale's greatest exploit lives again in his thrilling and spectacular feat, driving an African camel corps across that vast, uncharted sea of sand known as the Great American Desert. and John Ireland, even greater than in Red River. This girl was wanted by more than the law. John Daner. Go away. battle against tremendous odds. It won him and the girl who fought beside him an unforgettable place in the history of the West. Is there, are we doing a time frame? I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah, uh, we're going to be doing this for Kino Lorber, Blu-ray release in uh, uh, 2024 for the 70th anniversary of the film's release. Uh, I have to give a shout out uh, to a gentleman who discovered the missing reels, and that's Darren Gross, who works at MGM. Uh, now, for years, uh, it was thought that uh, uh, four of the nine reels of the right side were, were gone uh, because their inventory, they had a complete left side negative, but they only had five reels of the right side. Uh, so for that, that was one of the reasons why uh, over the years when licenses with MGM were being negotiated by Frank Tarzi at Kino, they never really pursued it because almost half the film would have had to be flat. But uh, way back in March 2018, I got an email from uh, Darren and he said, you're not going to believe this, but <laughs> we just got um, an inventory from a lab in the UK and they had cleaned out a lab in Italy that had gone out of business. And uh, in, in the holdings that came in from this uh, bankrupt lab were four reels labeled Wagons West. Now, Darren was savvy enough to know that Wagons West was the UK title of Southwest Passage. So he had those pulled in and shipped out to California. And they were the four missing right eye elements, uh, the original camera negative. So that was almost five years ago. And I've been waiting five years now. <laughs> I'm very, uh, you know, very excited about it because I, I just love the fact that nobody has seen this in 70 years. And you're going to now see it on 3D Blu-ray and it's going to look better than anyone has ever seen it before. You know, I should say, too, even in 1954, when it was released, uh, 3D movies were really kind of dead by the summer of that year. 
If you notice on the window card here, there's a little circular uh, tag that says a thousand, was it a thousand miles of roaring excitement? Well, the reason that uh, that tag was in the corner was for most of the bookings were flat, but for anybody that was going to show it in 3D, the press book had these special snipes made uh, to fit exactly over that particular part of the poster. It, uh, it premiered in Atlanta in 3D, uh, played some other theaters in Georgia, uh, Pennsylvania, including Philadelphia, which is probably the biggest, after Atlanta, the biggest city, maybe a few others, but uh, it was rare, rarely seen in 3D. Uh, so in many ways, this Blu-ray is gonna be kind of a premiere for that. That's great. I also love that you shouted out that how, like how it was found. You know, this stuff's scattered. Some of this stuff scattered to the four winds, and the idea of just finding it in the first place uh, is sometimes it's a miracle. So I love that you shouted out who found it. I think credit where credit is due is important, and uh, that was classy of you. So I'm really excited about this release. I, I'm bummed to have to wait until 2024, but uh, there are other things coming in the meantime to, to tide us over, right? Oh, yeah, we, there, we've got at this point in time, more films, vintage films in the pipeline than ever before. Uh, we've actually got a dozen vintage 3D films that are coming soon. Uh, a few of them have been announced that I could share with you. Uh, Buona Devil, which was the first one that kickstarted the whole 1950s boom. Uh, we're going to be doing that one for Kino Lorber. Uh, Prison Girls, which is a 1973 uh, soft core adult movie with all the shenanigans that happen uh, in women's prisons. I don't oh, understand what you mean. What could that? <laughs> well, yeah, there's 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 a, a lot of hijinks there. I'll, I'll let you find out for yourself. But uh, <laughs> that'll be our next one for Kino. Uh, they've just announced Jack Arnold's The Glass Web, which is super exciting because that's uh, Edward G. Robinson, John Forsythe. And the 3D sensation of it came from outer space, uh, Miss Kathleen Hughes uh, in the Miracle of Third Dimension. It's beautiful black and white. It is. How yeah. sexy is the marketing image for that? With the you know, she's like Ooh. laid out with the leg in the air. That's this. That's so sexy. <laughs> that's that's pretty. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. keep keep the kiddies away for that. But uh, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, it's also widescreen. One of the early widescreen 3D films. So that is very exciting. Uh, and uh, some of you may have noticed a little chaperone up here, Robot Monster. Uh, that was uh, a project we uh, funded with Kickstarter backers and uh, had over a thousand people that pledged their support to save and restore Robot Monster. And, you know, what, what needs to be said about seeing Roman in the miracle of 3D? Uh, that's going to be very exciting. And that'll be coming out in uh, spring, early summer of next year. And in addition to that group of titles, we've got another uh, five in the pipeline, including one other Golden Age title, four Silver Age titles for the folks that are looking for something a little more modern, and one very exciting historical content uh, kind of Golden Age project that we're going to be announcing uh, in the very near future. So there's a lot of stuff in the pipeline. And uh, I keep telling Greg, take his vitamins and <laughs> stay, 
<laughs> stay healthy because uh, there's a lot of a lot of goodies coming uh, in 3D on Blu-ray. Is this sort of a magic moment, or do you see this continuing? It's I I would like to see it continue. Uh, you know, it, there realistically there is going to reach the point where. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna run out of titles. Uh, you know, there's still a lot to go. Uh, Warner Brothers has 12 in their library, and that includes uh, the RKO and MGM titles that haven't been restored. Uh, Sony has about another half dozen that they have not done. Uh, so, you know, depending on how things go with uh, getting an opportunity to work with either Warner Brothers or Sony. It could be many, many more years of restorations. I'm, I'm optimistic, and I've got my fingers crossed that, that 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 will happen. Is there anything that fans can do to help, you know, help grease the wheels? Is there anybody that we can contact, or anybody that we can? What can we do? What can fans do to to help uh, some of these relationships with other studios? Because you know, Warner Brothers is very protective of properties that they own, understandably so. But you're getting stuff done. I mean, you guys are really is prolific but you turn out really good work and i is there something that we can do to help you um get access to some of this stuff is there anything that's in the fans control i think one thing that's that has been going on that that really does help and and, and especially in the age of you know people getting on their computers and and let's just say finding titles um is we are very lucky that we have a dedicated core that is purchasing each and every title. I mean, they're they're putting their money where their mouth is, and and that's how they're supporting. And as long as these titles don't take a loss, you know, then more can be brought forward. And 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 that applies even, you know, not only with Kino, but but with Universal. Um, you know, if Warner Brothers does something, you know, did that title make money? Did they break even? And, and for them, that's the ultimate thing that says, you know, we need to move forward. Mm -hmm. If I could add to that, I think part of what has been so successful for us uh, since 2014 uh, is, you know, we deliver uh, outstanding results at a very reasonable rate. Uh, you know, we're not working out of a New York or L.A. post house where you're paying a premium uh, a facility fee for doing scanning and, and cleanup and alignment and everything else. Uh, so, you know, if we're, when we have an opportunity to work from scans of camera negatives, as we did with uh, the maze for Kino Lorber, and that was thanks to Martin Scorsese and uh, the Film Foundation, uh, you know, we can deliver outstanding results. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes we're a little handcuffed because of the available budgets we have to go off uh, either a fine grain or a dupe negative or something just because the, the money isn't there to go off, off an original negative. But uh, uh, I hope that we can keep that going and, and nothing would make us happier than to have an opportunity to continue to get more titles out of, uh, out of the vaults and seen again. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, further saying, you know, elaborating on, on what Bob said is, you know, one point in time, Bob had the largest uh, listed private library of 3D titles in the world. And he's projected the vast majority of these and he knows what they're supposed to look like. 
He's worked with the studios before. He knows a lot of the inventory. And we both understand the basics of stereoscopics and what needs done. Um, it's amazing, without naming names, how many big studios have released 3D Blu-ray releases and the alignment's been off, the panel matching's been off, the you know, the, the timing between left and right elements. You know, and that's because you would not ask somebody when they're putting out a major title to say, hey, do you know color correction? You know, that's that's inviting trouble. And it's the same with doing a movie in Cinerama. You know, do you understand Cinerama? You just don't go, oh, I think I do. Um, that's something where we've worked on more 3D titles, you know, as far as assembling them for um restoration on home home video and digital cinema than anybody else so it's it's getting that presentation where you really can deliver a process that has it better looking in this case it's it's not a, a hype slogan better than it ever has before so it seems like this is a really exciting time where the tools are there the technology is there yes it's just the it, at, at access and finances is what it comes down to. So yeah, yeah, we have as a fan, the responsibility is to support this stuff so that it continues to grow. Uh, that's something that's a recurring theme. And a lot of what I talk about, not just with 3d, but like all physical media and everything that we see you support with your dollars, you know, every dollar, every dollar you spend and every dollar that you don't spend sends a message to someone. Yeah. I think too, um, with, uh, with the fact that we've had over 30 releases now since 2014, uh, there are people that like what we do. Uh, and, and most recently, you know, and Greg touched upon this a little bit earlier, uh, we're now putting anaglyphic versions uh, on the disc with the discrete polarized. So that way, uh, if you wanna see something like the Diamond Wizard uh, and you don't have a 3D display or projector, you can still see it using the anaglyphic system. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, that's just all part of the whole idea, trying to make these accessible to as many people as possible. Yeah, it's 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 great because there's no excuse not to support it at that point too. That's the other thing is that there's something for if you're interested in that movie, there's some way that you can watch it. If you've got the polarized, if you've got the anaglyph, however, you can support that release and you can contribute to the work that you guys are doing directly. So. Um, absolutely and 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 you've you've had a chance heath to see the diamond wizard yeah. you know on on one of the newer tv displays anaglyphic is can, can be very effective it's great i mean honestly it's great it, it's it's to your point about like you know you're talking about the the color gamut and all these different things but like on a modern hd tv or a 4k tv this yes. stuff looks just beautiful and your brain like you stop you don't even notice the any color changes or anything like that you just get sucked into the movie and you're watching this beautiful presentation so um yeah i personally would vouch for that i would say that yeah it's i would i i love that i love that that's a a uh, an option for 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 the people that don't have a 3d setup or you know it, it makes it accessible for everybody is what it does because everybody's got a blu-ray player they they should i hope they do uh everybody's got a tv that can play something like that and it just it, it opens the door 
really. It, it really does. And what's nice is with the 3D Blu-ray format, it does two things. It still offers the what I'll call the Rolls-Royce 3D viewing experience, uncompromised, very, very much on par with what was shown 70 years ago. You know, and it also by the 3D Blu-ray spec provides a 2D viewing option. So, you know, there's there's choices galore here on how you can watch uh, a vintage 3D title. So that's well, a good thing. Not, not only that, I'll just add that if if you were crazy enough like I was years ago and you wanted to run 3D and, and you had to find the prints, you had to use something like this, <laughs> you know. And that's just one reel of four that you would have needed. Uh, and, and, you know, without any film on it, this reel is heavy. You put 50 minutes of, of film on there and you're, you're lifting weights. Uh, yeah. So you know, that's how you had to do it. Then now you just pop this in a player and, and hit play. <laughs> it, it's super easy. Yeah, we got it so good. Tell us about the projector behind you. I want to know more about that. Oh, that, uh, yeah, that's a uh, Simplex XL, which was introduced around 1950 or 51, uh, was considered pretty much the high end of projector systems at the time. And this is how people would have seen movies and theaters. Uh, this is uh, a standard booth had two of these projectors and the films came in roughly 20 minute reels like this. So uh, a feature would be four or five reels and, and they would change over from one machine to the next about every 15 or 20 minutes. And that's why sometimes when you see old prints or old transfers, you'll notice in the upper right corner, these little circular marks. Uh, a lot of people call them cigarette burns. They're, they're not, they're cue marks. And that meant that the operator in the booth was looking for those. So when the first set of cues hit the screen, he would start the opposing projector. With the second set of cues, he changed over, flipped the dowser, opened like so. And that was the real change. And every film was shown that way. Uh, for 3D, it was, it was a lot more complicated because it involved synchroniz synchronization between the two. But uh, uh, the quality was great. Uh, but not very practical uh, in, in this day. And I have to say that uh, a lot of the restorations uh, that are out there now on Blu-ray, uh, where they do a lot of cleanup and you know, correct problems that were baked into the original elements, they look better now than the original prints looked. So it, it really is a wonderful time to be a film fan and even uh, somebody young who's just getting interested in classic film you've got so many great releases at, at your you know at your fingertips do you want to move to some questions we asked the uh the audience for some questions and we have some do you want to move into that sure sure yeah, uh, some some i think we've answered yeah with the first round but yeah we'll we'll see what we can cover uh well let's see so Mark P was asking uh, the 3D Film Archive has tackled so many 3D titles in collaboration with Kino Lober Studio Classics. Is there ever any hope that 3D Film Archive will get a shot to work on any Warner? Oh, because we talked about Warner Brothers a little bit. Is there any chance for future restorations of more Silver Age 3D titles, such as the 3D titles made by Earl Owensby? 
I would say Heath at this point, I would say never say never. Um, anything's possible and things always change and, and Bob's relentless. That's a good answer. Uh, Jesse S what in God's name can we do to ensure that 3d capability remains on at least some display devices in the future? I think the answer to that is there are still 3d options in a number of the new 4k, uh, projection devices, you know, and those can be had relatively cheap. Uh, VR is an option. Um, Mike blue does VR on a number of classic titles all the time. That's his, I think his preferred viewing method. And you can buy a number of these displays cheap. Again, um, Facebook marketplace, Craigslist, um, all, all are very reasonable prices. Okay. Mike, uh, Mike K we, this has been touched on a little bit, but if you want to hit it, we can hit it again. Talking about the 3d, uh, the 3d projector setup. Uh, what does the future of vintage 3d film appreciation look like to you? Are there virtual reality headset options already, or is that in the works as just one example? I would say, yeah, VR can play a big role in, in the future of 3d. And, you know, our goal is to have these future proofed where they can be uh, utilized either directly or modified, um, you know, for such applications. So, yes. I have to just add that thanks to Greg, I don't have a VR uh, headset set up, but uh, last time I was visiting Greg and his family, you showed me some stuff that absolutely blew my mind where you could put this, you know, gear on and what was that? It was on the Great Wall or, or, of China or something where I, I thought I was standing there. Oh yeah. my goodness. Yeah. Um, and you know, and it's amazing, you know, you talk about, uh, sub formats or, or various variations of formats. I have a 180 degree VR camera. That's also 3d. And I think you saw some footage of when you were in town, the last time we went to the zoo and, you know, to be able to watch that in VR and, um, it really is incredible what can be done now um, with not only stereoscopics but VR, and and I think a lot of these titles could be could be adapted. I've had some ideas. Um, yeah, you you could you could pull off some really neat stuff. Robbie has an interesting question. Robbie S. Um, in the case of new 3D films that get theatrical release in 3D, why don't they come to 3D Blu-rays? Um, do you guys have a thought on that? Is it the cost? to add the 3d portion to a physical release or is it something else? And then there's a follow-up question. Does 3d streaming have a potential future? Um, my take on that would be there are certain studios that have made up their minds um, after brief flirting with titles and they just opted not to pursue that further. And I think the second thing that's kind of muddied the waters is 4k. You know, you get bean counters and people that want to keep something simple. You know, it, it's how many releases do you make of a given title? Um, you know, 3D, 2D, 3D Blu-ray, 4K. Um, you know, is there an IMAX enhanced version? Um, you know, I, I think it's it's just been easier for some studios just not to think about it. Will there be a 3D Rarities Volume 3? I'm guessing mm -hmm. Bob's going to say 
never say never. But no. at this time, no. <laughs> Bob, well, what, what's your take? I, I Not at this time. A part of the thing, uh, we're, we're very immensely proud of the, the two volumes of 3D rarities that we did with uh, Flickr Alley. Uh, in fact, the first one is is incredibly successful and maybe our biggest selling release. And there's a particular irony with that because I couldn't give that away. Uh, from 2011 to around 2014, nobody was interested and rejection after rejection. The best one was a letter that said uh, the material is not interesting. So having 3D rarities and have it do so well is, has been a, a nice resolution of that. But probably not right now because with the dozen features that we have in the pipeline, uh, there's just, we don't have the time to, you know, start looking for more shorts and unusual things like that to assemble. Uh, it's a lot of work. I mean, a lot of, there's still things buried in the vaults uh, that I'd like to resurrect. Uh, but, you know, the flip side of that is I just found out somebody had asked a number of people, in fact, with the uh, glass web that Kino Lorber secured from Universal, they said, wouldn't it be great to include the 3D short that originally played with it called Carnival in April? And uh, there are seven songs in that short that would need to be cleared. And that's a deal breaker. There's just no way. Glass web was held up for years because of one song. You've got a, a two reel short with seven songs in it. There's just no way on earth to clear that. So there are a number of really choice things that are going to stay in the vaults because they, they have music and they just can't be cleared. So no plans right now for 3D Rarities 3. Well, this is the last question, and it, it, it kind of dovetails into something we were talking about earlier, which is elements that don't exist are finding some things. So, Mike, this is Mike's last question, Mike K. Uh, modern films are often exhibited, in, they're shot, traditionally and then converted to 3d in post is this something that you could consider doing for something that the elements have been lost for the 3d elements have been lost could you convert something using a flat uh flat source greg <laughs> um no that's fine um you know he here's my problem with converting uh, a 3D title that there's just one eye and for all intents and purposes now, it's a 2D title. Um, you know, part of 3D preservation and the uniqueness of these is the interaxial that was used, you know, their convergence settings in even the best conversions and, and you know, and not the, not the ones that are cracked off in a few weeks. But, you know, even if you you put a great deal of time and effort like you did with let's say titanic or jurassic park you're still doing just a guess at what the interaxial was um the convergence all of that there's there's just no idea of of how it compared to the original and and right now there's so many native titles that we can we can have a shot at you know i think i think that's that's ultimately the most important thing to do would you compare it to colorizing a black and white movie? Somewhat, somewhat. It's getting <laughs> okay. better. It's getting better. I wouldn't be opposed to uh, to doing some fill shots if it didn't cost so much. And again, I'm talking doing it right where it looks indistinguishable from from native. 
I'll just add to that, if I may, that that we, we actually did look into it a, a couple of times. Uh, actually, when I was doing 3D Rarities 2, uh, I was thinking about, we have uh, uh, a short from 1922, uh, Views of Yosemite, that uh, played in 3D uh, with uh, the first 3D feature, and we've got one side of it. Uh, but a conversion starts at about $10,000 a minute. And, you know, to do a seven minute short, you're talking $70,000. It is just the money's not there. Uh, beyond the technical aspects that Greg referenced with the interocular and, and the things that were, were lost uh, from the original photography, it's just not cost efficient. Top banana, the lost feature, that, that runs 100 minutes. Uh, there's nobody on this planet that's going to put, you know, the kind of money into that to do a 3D conversion. Uh, so I don't see that happening, uh, unfortunately. All right. Well, I want to be very respectful of your time. But before I let you go, I know that there are some things that you've worked on in the past, some of which is not even 3D. That's on the market right now. Do you want to hit some of those things like there's there's a Abbott and Costello uh, project that's coming up. Do you uh, you want to do some 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 hyping of some things? Well, yes. Thank you for mentioning that. Uh, we've done a number of flat restorations, and a lot of people have been surprised. But uh, I always make the point that when we restore a three D film, uh, we're working on the left and right eye separately initially. Uh, so we're basically restoring two flat films every time we do a 3D title. So jumping into a, a movie that was filmed flat uh, is not all that difficult. And uh, we've done several now with classic flicks. Uh, the first one was Africa Screams, uh, scanned from the original 35 millimeter nitrate uh, material, camera negative and fine grain. Uh, this was a limited edition. The Blu-ray is now sold out. Uh, it's still available on DVD, but if you don't have this one, uh, don't hesitate. Uh, we also did, with Classic Flicks, uh, a restoration of Abbott and Costello's first color movie, Jack and the Beanstalk, uh, scanned from the best surviving 35mm super cine color elements. Uh, the camera negative and color separations were uh, went missing around 1959. But uh, Jack Thiexton uh, and I worked very hard on this uh, to scan multiple 35 millimeter materials. And Thad Komorowski did an amazing job in cleaning up all of the layers of dirt. Uh, and what a lot of people don't realize is a super city color print because of the really complex system of printing is three generations away from camera negative. So each generation added more dirt and damage and Thad did an amazing job cleaning all that up uh there's also two and a half hours of bonus extras on this so even if you're not the biggest fan of the feature uh you've got a lot of extra Abbott and Costello to uh enjoy on that I want to add to that too because I reviewed that here on my channel and every piece of feedback that I've gotten for that release is people saying I didn't know it could look this good. I had no idea this movie was so beautiful. Well, thank you. And that's really, uh, I've really got to sing the praises, not, not only of Jack Teakston and Thad Komorowski, but a, a brilliant uh, technician named Scott Jandro, 
who worked with Jack on uh, some various uh, fixes and using some pretty advanced uh, technology to restore a lot of the clarity that was missing on those super cinecolor prints. Uh, we have one surviving piece of camera negative. It's only about 25 or so seconds, but we were able to get the feature to look pretty close to the camera negative. And that was Scott Jondro's brilliant digital uh, arsenal that he had to work with. Uh, so thank you. We're really delighted to resurrect that from public domain hell and, and get it looking as good as it does. Yeah. And uh, uh, coming up next with Classic Flicks is season two of the Abbott and Costello show. And season one was uh, a big success for us with Kickstarter and, and a lot of backers. And from original 35 millimeter camera negatives and the original push-pull optical tracks, which sound pretty close to mag uh, magnetic. They're just amazing fidelity. And uh, we're currently working on season two of the Abbott and Costello show for classic flicks. And that will be uh, a spring, early summer release in 2024 as well. Where can people stay up to date on what's going on? Websites, social media? Oh, uh, the website is, uh, is, is kind of on limbo right now uh, because of some craziness with Google Sites. And, and I just really haven't had a chance to uh, iron those problems out. Uh, social media, probably Facebook and the 3D Film Archive Facebook page is where all the announcements will be made. We're also pretty active at Blu-ray.com. Uh, but one of the downsides to being you know, so busy with, with projects there's not a lot of time for social media, I'm afraid. So uh, we tend to, uh, you know, we certainly announce new titles and try to keep, you know, people up to date on what we're doing. But uh, I just, I'm not able to do that as much as I can. Or I'm not able to do it as much as I would like, I should say. Well, Greg, do you want to shout anything out? Or are you? Uh... Oh, I, I think I think we covered all the bases. Um... Well, Heath, again, thank you for giving us this opportunity to join you. Uh, we've long admired your work, and uh, we love having a chance to you know, connect with people that like what we do, and uh, appreciate you giving us this opportunity to, uh, to be here and answer some questions. And uh, there's a lot of good stuff coming ahead with Vintage 3D on Blu-ray, so uh, we'll come back again soon and uh, do a follow-up, I hope. Excellent. That's what I was going to say. I hope this will come back because I am so appreciative of you guys, but also the the cinematic preservation that you're doing. You're saving things from being lost and you're presenting it to us again. And once again, with an education, you're, you're giving us everything that we need to enjoy these uh, these these movies. And it just means so much to me. So thank you for your time. Thank you for being here. And I can't wait till we till we talk again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, there you have it. That is the 3D Film Archive. Mr. Bob Fermanek, Mr. Greg Kintz. These guys are doing incredible work. They are prolific in the volume of films that they are restoring. They are able to restore more films for less money than many of their, do I even call them peers? I, many of the their 
their brethren. How about that? Uh, they are doing incredible work, and they are able to go directly to uh, to these to the source, go directly to the the fans to finance a lot of this stuff. And uh, it's just really it gets me excited. It gets me excited about 3D films, which I admit, as you learned from the episode, probably I'm not super versed in 3D films. You know, 3D in the 80s it was around, and you know I know it's around now. But the the history of 3D, frankly, what it comes down to is my theaters didn't really show that. I have not had access to a lot of 3D stuff. So I'm working on my 3D setup at home. But I love that these guys give us options so that we can do whatever works best for us and see these movies. Uh, looking cleaner and better than they ever have before. As you saw the announcement in this uh, in this in this episode, we're getting a film that hasn't been seen in 70 years. Uh, that is very very exciting news. So support these guys. The links are in the description of this video or this audio, however you're uh, however you're checking this episode out. Uh, that's where that's your jumping off point for further action to go to go further while you're doing that further action make sure that you are subscribed to this channel or this uh this again if you're listening to it on the podcast format subscribe to this podcast because i don't want you to miss any episodes and that is how you engage that is how you make sure that you're not missing anything it also sends a direct message to the platform that you're using that serial at midnight is a valuable contributor and that you know algorithms and the best way that you can support this channel or support serial at midnight is to engage thumbs ups reviews comments tell people about us uh, engagement is the name of the game. If you're just, uh, hey, if you're downloading it, I do appreciate that. I don't want you to think that I don't appreciate downloads. I absolutely do. But uh, these companies are really, you know, Apple, you know, is really, these companies are looking for engagement. That's how they judge success and what, what to further promote. Uh, so anything that you can do to help get the word out about Serial at Midnight in podcast form. Serial at Midnight for your ears. It's a big bowl of fun for your ears. I just made that up. I don't know if that's something we're going <laughs> to... Well, is that the new slogan? Uh, big bowl of fun for your ears. I don't know. Guys, I want to I wanna thank you for the time you spend with me here. I am really genuinely excited about 2023, about the new year, about where this channel and where this podcast is going to go. We are going to have continuing uh, wonderful conversations with really creative, interesting people, and I want you to be here for it. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I will catch you later.